appreciate you coming on a Saturday morning in the snow to a talk on leishmaniasis that some people might think is boring, but hopefully you guys find exciting. And if you were at the drug talk yesterday, um, I'm happy to answer any questions even outside of leishmaniasis. And this is a small enough crowd that if you want to stop me in the middle of things, this can be, you know, low-key and flexible. So, um, my name is Dr. Rebecca Chancy. I'm a pediatrician by training. And, let's see, there's more people coming in. Okay. Um, so I, I did med school and residency and then lived overseas in Africa for a couple of years. And during the time that I was in Africa, I really enjoyed all the tropical medicine patients that I saw, but didn't have a lot of tropical medicine training because, as you know, in U.S. medical school, we don't get a lot of tropical medicine training. So I did this amazing course that we've chatted about called the Gorgas course. Um, it's through University of Alabama, but it's run out of Cayetano Heredia Hospital in Peru. Um, and so it's like an eight-week course. You go and live in Peru and Lima. You see patients at the hospital. You learn from the experts. And you take an exam at the end. And it also prepares you well for the um, American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene CTROP Med exam. So it's really fantastic. If you don't want to do that one, there's other courses uh, through USIS, through someplace in West Virginia, uh, I think Liverpool and the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. You know, so there's a couple different options. Uh, actually, University of Minnesota might have one now that goes to Uganda. Um, so there's more and more courses, but I'm particularly partial to that one and had a great experience. And we did see a lot of leishmaniasis cases while I was down there and met some leishmaniasis experts. You're in Peru, so you understand. Um, but I kept working clinically. I was in the ER in Texas and doing short-term trips overseas to Africa and eventually made my way um, back to Atlanta, where I'm from, and took a two-year fellowship position at the CDC called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. And if you're at all interested in public health, that's a great foray into public health and a great way to get into um, the CDC work. So I did that for two years in the Division of Parasitic Diseases and Malaria and then stayed on um, as a full-time epidemiologist, again, within the Parasitic Diseases Branch. And so our leash mania expert retired, and I took her job. Unfortunately, she didn't transfer all of her knowledge over, but I did learn a lot while she was there. Um, so we do all sorts of consults, um, not just for leishmaniasis, but anybody, any provider in the U.S. who has a patient that they are concerned has a parasite can give us a call, and um, we will help walk them through the case. We will help walk them through the diagnosis. If there's treatment that's only uh, available through the CDC, we will help dispense that treatment. So it's a service that a lot of providers in the U.S. don't know about, but I'm happy to, you know, explain and share and make sure that your patients get the best care. As I said yesterday in the other talks, you know, when you're overseas, unfortunately, we don't have jurisdiction overseas, so we can't really necessarily help with that. But um, hopefully some of these courses and some of these experts uh, you can have as a resource. So let's go ahead and get started. This is an overview of leishmaniasis. Um, it's a fairly complicated disease, so there's a lot of nuances. And obviously, I don't expect you to be an expert by the time we finish, but hopefully um, you'll at least get a better overview. And it'll bring up you know, things that you'll think about, hopefully, with your patients so that you can call us and ask questions. So we're going to discuss leishmaniasis epidemiology, uh, leishmaniasis presentations in the clinical setting, and different treatment options. Uh, as a CDC government employee, I have no conflict of interest. This is not necessarily the official policy of the CDC. These are all my disclaimers. Um, two particular treatment guidelines that I want to highlight are the recent PAHO 2020 leishmaniasis updated guidelines. So PAHO is the Pan-American Health Organization. 
Um, so it's applicable to the new world leishmaniasis. If you're in the old world, um, it doesn't apply, obviously. But the 2016 guidelines that Dr. Naomi Aronson uh, wrote with some of my CDC colleagues and other leishmaniasis experts is also very handy, and a lot of the information that will be in this presentation is uh, coming from that publication. So leishmaniasis is a, a disease caused by a parasite, and the parasite is an intracellular protozoa of the genus Leishmania. The fact that it's intracellular makes it a little bit more challenging for diagnosis. It's primarily a vector-borne disease spread by the bite of a sandfly, and the sandflies are most active from dusk to dawn. Um, it's found all over the world in the Africa, Americas, Asia, and Europe regions, and it's divided into old-world leishmaniasis and new-world leishmaniasis. The different clinical forms... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Can you define that old-world versus new-world? Yes, I'm going to show a picture in just a moment. Uh, the different forms of clinical leishmaniasis are cutaneous, mucosal, and visceral for the basic forms, and then each of those have some more complicated forms beyond that. So just a brief picture to kind of illustrate the different forms. The cutaneous you see on the, the side, the mucosal in the middle, and the visceral on the far end. And you can see that the level of morbidity and mortality increases with these different forms. Okay, so this is the picture that we can talk about for old world and new world. This comes from the IDSA guidelines. Um, if you see Brazil, Peru, Bolivia, South America, that would be considered new world. And anything in the above region in Africa, the Middle East, Southern Europe, that would be considered old world. So these are antiquated terms, you know, that like before the colonizers came, old world, new world. Um, but the different colors that you see are the different species of leishmaniasis where those parasites are endemic. Um, so in the South American continent, the darker red color is endemic for L. brazilensis, and the lighter pink peaches color is endemic for the Guinanses panamensis complex. So you can see that makes up the majority of South America species. And then in Central America, you get a little bit of the L. mexicana and the L. infantum shigasi with the blue and the green. And you can do the same for the Old World in Africa and the Middle East and Southern Europe. So it's not, um, it's in the tropical regions. It doesn't go, I don't know what latitude it stops at, but it doesn't go farther north to northern cold Europe, and it doesn't go farther west or east to Asia. Um, this is the cutaneous, and there's also, some of these cause visceral leash as well. So it's the distribution of cutaneous and visceral leishmaniasis in these various parts of the world. Did that answer your question? Okay. So we're going to talk briefly about the life cycle, because um, if you do parasitic diseases, everything, you need to remember the life cycle. So we have a picture of a human and a fly, and the sandfly is infected with the parasite, and it bites the human. The particular form of the parasite that is introduced into the human once it's bitten is called a promastigote. And once it's into the bloodstream, the macrophages phagocytose the promastigote. Then, within the macrophages, the parasite transforms and multiplies and infects new cells within the human body. Uh, once these cells are infected and another sandfly bites the human, then the sandfly then becomes infected with the parasite. There's a whole other life cycle stage in the parasite, in the uh, sandfly, where the parasite transforms again into a different form and the cycle begins again. So you have to have the sandfly portion and the human portion, and the parasite changes 
life stage as it goes through each side of the cycle. Unfortunately, a sandfly bite is not the only means of transmission. You can um, have a blood to human transmission through a contaminated needle. It's fairly rare, but you know, just be cautious when you are doing the skin scrapings and the biopsies. Um, blood transfusion, unfortunately, is also a potential possibility, as well as organ transplantation from an infected donor. Um, because these are in the tissues, you know, an organ can be infected. Uncommonly, you can get congenital and perinatal transmission as well. And then, as I said, needle stick injury is possible, but it's, it's rather low risk. And just in general, a person with leishmaniasis is not considered contagious, you know, if you are just interacting with them on a normal basis. So, we're going to talk about cutaneous leishmaniasis first. Um, these particular charts that I'm showing you right now are from up to date, so you can Google them. Um, but it breaks down the old world leishmaniasis species causing cutaneous disease, and then we'll look at the new world and then the visceral. And so there's several different uh, species that are all within the subgenus of leishmania. And the subgenus becomes important when we look at the new world in a moment. But the L major, the L tropica, and the L Ethiopica are the major players in the old world that cause cutaneous disease. And you can see the ge geographic distribution is variable. Um, the clinical presentation is exclusively leash cutaneous leishmaniasis until you get to the L tropica and the L ethiopica. The L tropica sometimes has a recidivance pattern when it recurs, and I'll show you a picture of that and talk about that in a minute. The ethiopica can have um, what's called a diffuse cutaneous leishmaniasis and sometimes rarely can have mucosal leishmaniasis. The New World, so South and Central America, causing cutaneous disease, has two different subgenuses, the Leishmania subgenus and the Viania subgenus. The Leishmania subgenus is L. mexicana, L. venezuelensis, and L. anamonensis, amazonensis, um, and it's in these countries listed here. It causes cutaneous disease, but occasionally the mexicana and the amazonensis can cause the diffuse cutaneous leishmaniasis. The Viania species is the subgenus that you need to think about for mucosal disease. So if you have anybody who's diagnosed with Brazilensis or Guyanensis uh, species, they can present just with cutaneous lesions initially, but because this species has a propensity to develop mucosal leash, you do want to treat them differently and you do want to monitor the patient differently because of the risk of mucosal leishmaniasis. Um, you can see that Bolivia, Brazil, and Peru are big players here in the L. brazilensis. And then um, the Amazon basin over here in Guyanensis. And uh, DCL, the diffuse cutaneous leishmaniasis, is also a possibility just for the brazilensis form. So the clinical characteristics of cutaneous leishmaniasis are pretty broad, and they can look like a lot of things. Um, usually it's one or more chronic skin lesions, and the symptoms can develop anywhere from weeks to months after a bite, so it's not an immediate thing. It can be nodular, papular, verrucous, ulcerated, crusted, or plaque-like, and we'll go through some pictures. It's not usually painful. Um, sometimes it has some lymphadenopathy or some subcutaneous nodules or some satellite papules, but it can be, you know, the differential diagnosis is broad for all of these, and so you do have to have a high index of suspicion and think about it, and hopefully you're in, in an area where you can do testing and, you know, biopsy. So this is an example of an erythematous papule. 
Um, L and phantom old world lesions can look like this and remain papular nodular without any progression to other uh, forms. But other species might start out as a papule and then change over time as the lesion progresses to other morphologies. This is an example of a crested ulcer. Um, again, you might think this is just a regular bite of an insect that just gets crusted and you know, possibly super infected, but this is actually leishmaniasis. Um, so it has an ulcer with a brownish crust covering the base and there's some surrounding induration. These are usually painless lesions um, and this could be the progression from the papule in the previous picture to the ulcerated crested lesion now. This is a picture of an ulcerated lesion. You can see it kind of looks like a volcano cavity. There's a big ulcer there. Um, it has some surrounding induration. There's no scab overlying this one. And then you can see those little nodules that extend up the proximal forearm. We call this a sporotrichoid pattern. Um, and that's an important thing to think about for leishmaniasis, but there's a few other um, fungal diseases that can cause that as well. But you, if you see that, definitely think about leishmaniasis. This one is a verrucous lesion, looks like a wart. And then this one is a hyperkeratotic lesion on this person's nose. So this one is what's called leishmaniasis recidivans. And so I want to focus on this just for a minute because with all the Afghan children who are coming over right now, we're actually seeing quite a, quite a bit. I say quite a bit. Quite a bit can be, you know, like five, but more than normal. Um, and so these children, because they're covered elsewhere, the only places that their skin is open is on the face. And... Um, they get bitten by the sandfly, they get the initial bite or the initial lesion, and once that lesion heals, whether through treatment or just spontaneously resolving, a year or two or more afterwards, it can then return and look like this. And it's usually caused by L. tropica, and unfortunately L. tropica is really recalcitrant to treatment. It's really, really hard to treat. And so I'm working with some providers um, in various places in the U.S. right now who have these patients, and they're trying the first treatment, and the second treatment, and the third treatment. And, you know, these poor children, it's painful. There's a lot of toxicity. The families obviously are concerned about cosmetic issues. They have to be in the hospital. So it can be quite problematic. But you can see, just looking at the lesion, they're papular. Um, it's kind of in a circular pattern, and you can see kind of the cavitary scar lesion where the original um, lesion was. And, yeah, they don't have to be this large. They can be just a few papules, but this one has many papules. So, as I said, the differential diagnosis can be broad. Um, it can look like a superficial bacterial skin infection, like impetigo or yaws. Uh, it can look like a cutaneous mycobacterial infection, like a tuberculosis or non-tuberculosis. It can look like a deep fungal infection, uh, like sporotrichosis, which can have a sporotrichoid spread, uh, coccidiomycosis, chromoblastosis, chromoblastomycosis, or histioplasmosis. Sarcoid can look like this, because sarcoid can look like anything. Discoid lupus erythematosus can look like this, or even a skin cancer, you know, if you've got an older person that looks like a basal cell carcinoma or a squamous cell carcinoma. So, oh yes, ma'am. Um, since this is such a wide differential, I mean, the first thing I was kind of thinking when I saw things was coccoides. Mm -hmm. um, what would give you the high index of suspicion in their history? Yeah, that's a good question. So obviously, if they're in the U.S., you want to ask about exposures outside of the U.S. So 
So a good travel history is really important, and not just recent travel, but even distant travel. So when we talk to people, not just for leishmaniasis, but for HAT or other parasitic diseases, we want to know every place you've been, like every single stamp on your passport, and where exactly in those countries you were. Because you can see it's a little bit pocketed in some of these countries based on this particular species is here, this particular species is here. So the epi history is really, really important. Um, if they have absolutely no exposure to leishmaniasis, then obviously you can go towards some of these you know, and feel more comfortable in that. But if they have exposure in the region and they have a similar looking um, lesion to leishmaniasis, you probably, what we see a lot is people treat for these more common illnesses first. So they usually get a course of topical antibiotics, they usually get a course of oral antibiotics. And then when things don't resolve or progress and get worse, then they usually think about leishmaniasis. And it's not wrong to triage it that way, um, especially if it's just a singular cutaneous lesion. Um, but if it, does, if it persists, then you definitely want to consider leishmaniasis. Um, so in the IDSA guidelines, there is a table that breaks the leishmaniasis down into simple and complex. And this kind of helps direct whether you're going to give only topical or no treatment or systemic treatment. So we classify a simple leishmaniasis lesion as having no mucosal involvement, so it's not within the Viania subspecies. There's only one or maybe one or two lesions. It's a small lesion. It's on non-exposed skin. The host, you know, the person has an intact immune system, and there's not mucosal association. So if that's the case, you can potentially just watch it and not treat it with anything, and it may spontaneously resolve on its own over months. Or you can consider uh, some local treatment options, whether that's paramycin or cryotherapy or heat or something like that. We consider complex leishmaniasis as having local subcutaneous nodules, um, more than four lesions that are a size greater than one centimeter, one particular individual lesion that's greater than five centimeters, if there's a lot of large regional adenopathy, if you have a non-intact immune system, or if they're on any particular sensitive areas like the face, the genitals, or the ear, if they failed local therapy, um, if they have some of the more specific syndromes like the recidivance pattern or the disseminated leishmaniasis, if the location does not permit local therapy, or if they have mucosal symptoms. For all of those reasons, they would need systemic therapy, and we have a couple different options for that. So when you are thinking that a patient has cutaneous leishmaniasis and you want to go and collect a sample, um, there's a couple different ways to do it. You can do a skin scraping, you can do a punch biopsy, or you can do a needle aspirate. And depending on what you do, you can either send it for histopathology, PCR, or culture. We absolutely do not recommend an excisional biopsy. And I would love to educate every single provider in the U.S. We have had at least one patient go to an ER in an unnamed location in the U.S. and have it excised completely. And I please do not do that. Tell all your colleagues, do not excise the lesion. Um, we also don't recommend doing serologies for cutaneous. When we get to visceral, you'll hear that you can do a serology for visceral, but it doesn't help for cutaneous. We do want to know the species as much as possible. You can try empiric treatment without knowing the species, but as I've said, it's, you know, the resistance pattern varies, the uh, response to treatment varies, and so culture and some of the DNA-based tests are the ones that allow species identification, and so that's what we prefer, is if you can get a culture. And you can see the pictures over here of the ulcer 
um, the cavitary where there's the border and then the base and then the center, and you want to try to biopsy the active edge, you know, get a little bit of everything if possible. And when you're aspirating, you'll be aspirating, uh, as you can see where the needle placement is, kind of from the border area. I have a video at the end, if we have time, to show you how to do a scraping, we'll, but we'll see how, if we have time. So just some practical points. For the scraping, you're removing part of the crust if it's present, and then you're collecting a sample from the base of the ulcer. This is going to be painful, and so you want to do uh, local anesthesia for the patient. Um, cleanse the lesion first and remove any betadine before you're culturing it, and try to limit the bleeding if possible so that you can get a pure sample. If you're doing the biopsy, um, we recommend using the indurated rim. And then if you're doing a culture, make sure that everything is sterile um, and you collect the culture first before you do any other procedures or scrapings. And as I said, culture is really important to allow species determination. So I don't know who loves pathology, but this is a pretty picture of an goat. So if you are overseas and you um, are looking at the slide yourself, if you see this, um, you know, that's pretty indicative that you have a patient with leishmaniasis. Again, it doesn't tell us what species, so we can't really know exactly what uh, direction to go in, but you do know it's a positive identification for leishmaniasis. All right, so some of the treatment options for cutaneous leishmaniasis. Um, observation in wound care is a possibility. You don't necessarily have to do anything. Um, local therapy, which could include heat therapy, cryotherapy, topical paramomycin or photodynamic therapy. Um, a lot of these, you know, if you have the ability to partner with a dermatologist, that would be helpful. Some of the systemic options include liposomal amphotericin B, miltefacine, uh, fluconazole, and megalamine antimoniate. Fluconazole is an easy option because it's available, but there actually are not a ton of species that um, respond to it, so it, unfortunately it's species-dependent. The pentavalent antimonials like the megalamine antimoniate are only available through the individual IND with the FDA, um, but you can use it injecting into the lesion or systemically. And hopefully you can see resolution. Now this doesn't have to be immediate resolution. The resolution can actually, you can have a worsening inflammatory response as you start treatment initially, and then through the course of the treatment, you would expect to see some improvement, but you don't have to have final uh, resolution of the lesion at the end of the treatment. You can continue to watch for a couple more months and hope that the lesion will resolve you know, as time progresses. If for some reason you've waited you know, an indeterminate amount of time, but a month or two, and the lesion has not resolved after giving the course of treatment, then you want to start thinking about needing to retreat with the same drug, retreat with a different drug. You know, there's been some kind of treatment failure. Um, so, as I said, the healing can start by six to nine weeks post-treatment, and by four to six weeks post-treatment, you want the lesion to have decreased by at least 50%, and ulcerative lesions should be re-epithelialized, and there should be no new lesions. If there's new lesions, then again, that mean, means you might need to look for other treatment options. Usually we say by about three months there should be some clinical cure, um, but sometimes you, know, you still need to monitor for six to 12 months after treatment to make sure that there's no additional lesions popping up. Okay, visceral leishmaniasis. So visceral leishmaniasis is caused by three main species, the L. donovani, the L. infantum, and the L. mundinia, um, and it's found in different regions of the country, of the, the world. So donovani is found in East Africa, Northwest China, and South Asia, and phantom is found in Central and South America, the Arabian Peninsula, 
the Mediterranean, North Africa, Middle East, and Western Asia and China. And then Mundinia is found in some of the Thailand, Myanmar, Grenada, and Martinique areas. Um, from a U.S. standpoint, the military is involved in some of these regions, and so you know you hear stories of them getting legitimized when they're out and about doing their activities. But again, we also see a lot of people coming over from uh, the Middle East and then coming through the southern border after crossing through Central and South America. So we definitely see a lot of these things in the U.S. from those populations. So you don't have to be overseas, but if you are overseas in these areas, um, you will also see legitimization as cutaneous and visceral forms. So visceral leishmaniasis is a systemic condition, and the parasite is invading all of the organs, the spleen, the liver, the bone marrow. The symptoms can appear months to years after a bite, and they could be asymptomatic, but if they do have symptoms, signs and symptoms may include fever, weight loss, or chronic malaise. And you can see this patient has a huge spleen. Uh, you definitely want to make sure to do a good physical exam, check for hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, uh, check for anemia, leukopenia, and thrombocytopenia. And if this is not treated, it can be fatal. So it's important to recognize and treat. Uh, you definitely want to look for other diseases. Um, in these settings, it could be pretty much anything. Malaria is a big possibility. Um, cancers, obviously, are a possibility. You can do a serology for visceral leishmaniasis. I mean, if it's available in your setting, but here in the U.S. you can. And it's an antibody to the RK39 antigen of the parasite. A negative test can exclude the visceral leishmaniasis, but a positive test requires confirmation of the diagnosis. Um, you want to do histopathology, PCR, and culture, just like for cutaneous leishmaniasis. And the preferred tissue specimen for diagnosis is bone marrow. But you can send samples of liver and large lymph nodes or whole blood, and we can try to do cultures on those as well. So, as I said, every single patient with symptomatic visceral leishmaniasis should be treated because it's a fatal disease. Treatment guidelines are available, and the special populations that may need um, individual unique medications or dosage regimens include very young children, the elderly population, anyone who's pregnant or lactating, and then someone who's immunocompromised. Um, we have some patients that I've been working with who you know, have both HIV and leishmaniasis, and that's a complicated thing to have together. So if they're immunocompromised, they definitely need a um, specialist to care for them. So the first-line treatment for visceral leishmaniasis is liposomal amphotericin B, and that is FDA-approved. Um, again, there's a different regimen for people who are immunocompetent versus those who are immunocompromised. Um, alternative regimens include miltefacine, which is FDA-approved for visceral leishmaniasis caused by L. Donovani, but you can also use it for other um, species within the practice of medicine. Pentavalent antimonials uh, that we have available in the U.S. right now are the megalamine antimoniate that you can contact me and I can help you uh, work through that process, but it's available through Sanofi. And then there's other formulations of amphotericin B as well. Um, hopefully, once you give the right treatment and the patient starts responding, the fever should resolve within a week or so, but the hepatomegaly and splenomegaly may take months to resolve. And then the laboratory abnormalities can normalize within a month, but could also take about a year to resolve. But they will start feeling better you know, soon after starting the correct treatment. You don't necessarily need to do repeat parasitological treatment testing um, if they're improving. If there's some indication that they're not improving and you think that something else is going on or they're resistant to the medication, then we can potentially talk about repeat testing. 
So I want to briefly mention leishmaniasis in the U.S. Um, it is a reportable condition in Texas. If you live in Texas and you have a patient that you think has leishmaniasis, you need to report it to your health department. Uh, it's not reportable in these other states. And then if there is an outbreak or a cluster of public health importance, it's in, uh, reportable in the states listed here in the middle. But there are reports of a species called Leishmania mexicana, which acts a little bit different than the Leishmania mexicana from Mexico, uh, reported in patients in Texas and southeast Oklahoma. So there's one report from KIPP of 80 autochthonous cases in Texas um, around 2020. So that means these patients never left the U.S., they never had any other travel exposure, but they got leishmaniasis here in Texas. Um, it was a chronic painless ulcer or papule, about one to two centimeters in size, but it healed without intervention within a couple of months. And then there were a few rare cases of mucosal leishmaniasis and diffuse cutaneous leishmaniasis. So again, this is important enough to know and recognize in your patients, um, and based on the epidemiologic uh, exposure, to know whether or not they got it here versus somewhere else. So some of the takeaway points are treating leishmaniasis is complex. Um, most of the evidence of certainty of the medications is either low or very low. Um, shared decision-making with the patients is important, especially when there's a couple different options involved. And then treatment recommendations will depend on the patient's travel history, local resources, and their preferences. And then, as I said, we're available to help uh, with diagnosis and treatment and plans. Uh, the University of Washington, McGill University in Canada, and a lab at the Walter Reed Army Institute have diagnostic capacity in addition to CDC. And these are a couple of the different resources. I mentioned two of them at the beginning with the PAHO guidelines and the ASTMH article. Um, the WHO has a good website with resources. Our CDC, Leishmaniasis website, I try to keep up to date as best as possible. Um, and then this is our Parasitic Diseases Inquiries email and telephone number for consulting us. And I thought I would briefly run through a case, and then if you guys have any questions, I'm happy to take those as well. So this is a 27-year-old male with no past medical history who, in September to October 2021, traveled to southern Costa Rica. He was on an adventure trip, and he rafted on the uh, Pacuri River, camped in the forest near the Panama border. He was wearing shorts. He doesn't remember being bitten. He came home um, a couple weeks later, and the lesion started in the middle of October in the right popliteal fossa. Initially, it was a small lesion, um, but then it started to grow in size and progressed to an ulcerative lesion. It had heaped-up edges with a black eschgar and some yellow fibrinous material, about half dollar size, and he said it felt tight in his right thigh. There was no inguinal adenopathy, um, but he did have some nodular lymphadenopathy in the medial thigh region, and there were no mucocutaneous lesions. And this is a picture that I was sent. Um, so the treatment that they had tried already was Keflex Bactrim, a topical fungal cream, and the, then the dermatologist biopsied the leading edge. And this is what the biopsy showed. Um, obviously, it's not zoomed in like the other one, but there were mastigotes that were present. And so through culture we were and PCR, we were able to confirm leishmaniasis gynenses. And so he received treatment with miltefacine as an outpatient. Um, the target dose for him was 2.5 mg per cake per day, and you can see the FDA regimen listed there. Um, as I mentioned in the drug talk yesterday, unfortunately the 10 mg pediatric cabinet capsules are not available, um, but the 50 mg capsules are, and so that's what he took, and he resolved and did fine. So thank you very much, and I'm happy to take any questions you might have. Or if you want to see the skin scraping, we can show that video too. Yes, sir? What was the reason not to take 
So you want to treat the parasite, and the parasite is in the tissues, but you have no way of knowing um, how far, how extensive the parasite goes, and it's kind of, you know, just the visual of what you see with the lesion is not uh, representative of where the parasite is as a whole. And if you're sending it off, you're not necessarily, in this particular case, they didn't biopsy it, so we had no information as to what it actually was. Um, but you also don't want to, ex- you know, take it off because it will heal with treatment. And so you're basically creating an unnecessary new deep scar that had you just treated it, he would have been fine and, you know, he would have had more tissue available for normal tissue. That makes sense? Yeah. Right, right. So that's why I'm saying if you biopsy it first, make sure that it's not leishmaniasis, then you can take the whole thing off. But if, if you can resolve the lesion with medication, then you're saving him, you know, you're saving him that extra tissue there that's healthy, potentially. Yes, sir? You mentioned systems uh, from following CDC or whoever. Uh, what is the time frame like of that process? You mean what's the turnaround for calling CDC? Um, we try to respond back to you in about 24 hours. Uh, sometimes it's 48 hours, but someone is manning the phone 8 to 5, uh, and then overnight, if it's an emergency, there's someone manning the emergency phone. Um, but yes, we try to respond in a timely one to two day follow up, depending on how urgent the case is. Yes, ma'am. Two questions. When we are abroad, what are our best resources? Yes, they can. Um, I mean, I have been overseas and seen some, like, 10, 11-year-olds who we suspected might have this relationship. I haven't seen any toddlers with it. But, you know, toddlers or younger children actually tolerate these medication regimens better than adults do for whatever reason. Um, and so amphotericin, liposomal amphotericin B is actually, you know, not a terrible choice of a drug to try for them. Um, but yes, I think the more complicated issue in low-resource settings is supporting them in other ways, so making sure they have cardiac monitoring, fluid resuscitation, you know, good nutrition. Because if they're poorly, if they have poor nutrition, you know, that really impacts their healing capacity. Um, I don't have numbers on how many kids make it and how many kids die, you know, what the mortality rate is, but I would think it would be setting dependent based on what you have access to. Um, Yes, as far as who to contact when you're overseas and have a question, um, sometimes the local governments will have guidelines, you know, the the country protocol for how to approach these different diseases based on what they have access to in country for their medications. Um, You know, if you are part of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene or some of these other groups, they list uh, on their experts who you can email with questions. I mean, I don't want to say this out loud, but I'm also happy to answer questions personally outside of my CDC role, um, you know, if you have any particular patient that you're, you're worried about. Um, but yes, I think just networking with others in the area who have more experience and longer term there. If it is an American who is visiting, like, you know, two Americans, um, sometimes the CDC does see that as an American concern and you can, you know, email questions. Yes, sir. Uh, versus a, when you're dealing with, like, 
Is not visceral, but I'm not sure if you post orders of the same because there a broad spectrum treatment and then you just um, observe whether or not that's working. Can you repeat the question? Like, is there is there a broad spectrum treatment for leishmaniasis um, where you, like, if you're in the field, you can't determine if it's mucosal subcutaneous or visceral at first? I see. So, well, if you are in the old world and there's no concern for mucosal leishmaniasis and it's just cutaneous, then you should be fine. You can do just topical treatment. If you're in the new world and there's concern for mucosal leishmaniasis species, but the patient only has cutaneous lesions, that's where you go to that chart where it said what simple is versus what complex is. And so if it's complex and you think that it's a mucosal species based on your region of the country where you are, then yes, I would use whatever's available. So usually amphotericin B is available. Usually one of the antimonials is available. But that's why it's helpful to know, I mean, regardless of what disease we're talking about, it's always helpful to know in the country where you're working what the national protocols are and what the national formulary is. And that way you can kind of have a plan for, you know, first choice, second choice, third choice. Are there, um, is there any, like, patient reaction to any medications that would be um, broad treatment, like just unnecessary? I mean, all of these medications are pretty toxic. Uh, they're heavy metals. You know, amphotericin B is, is not a good medic. It's not fun to take. Um, so, yes, I wouldn't just willy-nilly give them treatment just because you have it available. I would be a little bit thoughtful. Um, I mean, ideally, you're monitoring your creatinine, their liver enzymes, your chemistry, their CBC, you know, if you're doing it in the U.S. So it is important to make sure that they're peeing, they're drinking, they're hydrated, you know, when you're giving these medications in low-resource settings. Any other questions? Well, thank you guys so much. Oh, yes, ma'am. Would you ever, um, so in cutaneous, when it doesn't ulcerate or open and it's more encapsulated, would you ever uh, drain it or anything for, not necessarily for treatment, but even just for, for comfort or anything like that? It, it's, not, it's not like a boil where there's pus under it to drain. And they're usually painless uh, if they're small enough to be covered over. So, no, the answer is no. Um, if you are taking a sample from the border to send, you know, for PCR, then that, I guess, is a form of drainage. Um, but if you just let it kind of resolve with time, it should progress. If it's a simple lesion, it should progress and heal on its own. Yeah. Yes, sir. When you're ordering for a histology, is there any special stain you're ordering for? Is it just a uh, that is a good question. I should know the answer to that, but I'm not a pathologist. Um, can I get back to you on that? If you give me your email address, I'll email you. We, we usually don't see histology. We usually get the PCR and the culture results. But, yeah, I'm assuming it would be one of the simple H&E stains. Silver stain. I'm just trying to think of how I get from not suspecting it to getting a diagnosis, I mean, like the others, I'm thinking infection and cancer. Right. And that involves taking biopsies. Right. And that's always nice when your pathologist tells you right. what track to go down. Right, exactly. Well, again, the epi history is really important. So if you can get a good epi history of where they've traveled and what their exposure risk is, then that'll help. Um, but yes, if you tell your pathologist, I'm concerned about leishmaniasis, then hopefully they'll tell you what stain to use. Um, but I can ask our lab to confirm and get back to you on that. 
And if you, so the way to send a sample to the CDC, I should probably mention that as well, you do have to get pre-approval, and so when you contact us, we will set you up and connect you to the CDC lab, and so they will give you specific instructions on what kind of uh, media to transport it in, you know, what temperature to transport it in, how to do the biopsy specimen and labeling and everything. So that's their job. Any other questions? Thank you guys so much.